Thanks, Logan. We are continuing today in our series in the Gospel of John. We're entitling Answering Jesus. We're taking six weeks to look at six passages in which Jesus confronts a crowd, talks to a crowd or an individual, and he basically asks them a question. Sometimes the question is explicit, do you wish to be made well? Sometimes it's implicit in what he teaches. But these are questions that every single one of us has to answer if we really want to experience God in his fullness, if we really want to live as disciples of Jesus. Today we're going to look at a long chapter, not every verse, but we're going to look at John chapter 6. And this is the chapter in which Jesus makes this declaration, I am the bread of life. But interestingly, he doesn't lead with that. You don't find that in verse 1. You find it halfway through in verse 35. He leads by feeding the 5,000, providing bread. And then he confronts the theology, the, the kind of uh, skewed theology of the crowd, uh, especially as it relates to Moses and manna, God providing bread in the wilderness. Then he says, I am the bread of life. And then when people resist the idea that Jesus is the bread of life, the, the discussion escalates. And Jesus finally at the end of the chapter says, fine, if you want to have eternal life within yourself, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, okay? Very dramatic thing to say. By the end of the chapter, nobody is neutral about Jesus. Either people reject him, most people in the crowd did, they reject him or they accept him as the bread of life and they seek to experience his fullness. And the same thing happens today. The same thing will probably happen here this morning. When you understand who Jesus is and what he claims, you cannot be neutral about him. Uh, you will either reject him out of hand and say, no, I can't, I can't go there. Or else you will see the beauty and the power of Jesus as the bread of life, and you can't stay away from him. And so today we begin in, in John chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And so Jesus crosses over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Mark tells us that Jesus was trying to find a secluded place. He wanted to uh, spend time with his disciples alone. But this crowd sought Jesus out because of the miracles he had done. They followed him. And when they found, they found him uh, the, next, the next morning, we read this, verse 3. Uh, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Interestingly, three times in the Gospel of John, uh, one of these yearly Passover feasts is mentioned. And in conjunction with each Passover, uh, there's some incident or some, some uh, event in Jesus' life. And every time an event in Jesus' life is paired with the Passover, there's a little bit different significance. And the significance we're going to see in John 6 is that just like Moses in the wilderness provided manna for the children of Israel, Jesus is going to provide bread for the crowd that was in a secluded place. And so Jesus is going to be compared to Moses. The manna is going to be compared to the bread that Jesus offers. Verse 5, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these 
may eat. And then in verse 6, John gives a comment to make sure that we understand that Jesus wasn't seeking information he really didn't know. He was testing Philip. He says, this he was saying to him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And so he tested Philip in the sense of exposing what's in his heart and his mind. And uh, we quickly learned that, that Philip was thinking in a very practical, earthly terms, whereas Jesus wanted to demonstrate his glory. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Uh, one denarius is what a common laborer would make in one day. And so 200 denarii, that's like over six months of income. Philip just makes this helpful observation. Jesus, over six months of income would not buy enough bread for everybody to have even a little bit to eat. At this point, Andrew chimes in. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But notice the comment. But what are these for so many? And so again, it's very practical. He's thinking, yeah, we've got a little bit of food, but it's no good with the crowd that's here. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. So if there were 5,000 men, we learned from Mark that there were also women and children. It's very likely there were uh, over two, two, uh, 20,000 people out in this grassy place. Okay, so this, this is a mob. And without telling them what he's going to do, Jesus commanded the people to sit down on the grass. Mark tells us they sat very orderly, groups of 50 and groups of 100. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, so he didn't bless the food, he gave thanks to God, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And so just like God provided manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness, Jesus provided barley, bread, and fish to this crowd that had gathered in a secluded place. And the mention of 12 baskets is probably just one more connection to the wilderness uh, wanderings of the, the, in the Exodus. Uh, just as there were 12 tribes God provided for, there were also 12 apostles, and there were 12 baskets full of bread left over. And so Jesus' miracle met a very tangible need. He supplied their daily bread, and the people were clearly impressed. They even understood that Jesus was a fulfillment of a prophecy uh, for this prophet who would come. So we read in verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. If you go back and read in Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses had told the, the people right before they entered the promised land, he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. You shall listen to him and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so the people rightly understood Jesus is the prophet that Moses had commanded, but they wrongly concluded that Jesus should also be the earthly king of Israel. 
I mean, he had skills. He had, he had skills that would be very valuable in a king with a, of a great nation. Verse 15, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And so he's exposing the motives of their hearts here. Now, why would they want him to be a king? Uh, guess what percentage of a person's income, your common laborer, guess what percentage of a, of a person's income in the first century in Palestine went toward food? It's estimated that 85% went toward food, okay? Imagine having a king of a country who could supply food, just free food, day in and day out. Imagine getting an 85% raise, okay? That would be pretty sweet, right? And so they said they were going to take him by force. They weren't going to submit to him as Lord, as Messiah. They wanted to take him by force and make him king so that he would do for them what they wanted him to do for them. And Jesus understood that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. But... uh, yeah, Jesus would not accept anybody else's job description. It was true in that day. It's true in our day. He would become king. He would be enthroned, but only after his crucifixion and resurrection. Then he would ascend and be enthroned at the right hand of God. But he wasn't going to accept anybody else's assignment, anybody else's job description. And the same thing is true today. Uh, you can't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is what I want you to, to do. This is what I want you to be. Here's my job description for you. Do it or else I'm not going to follow you. Yeah, Jesus doesn't accept that. Jesus already has a mission. He already has a will. You read in verses 16 through 21 how the disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night and they went without Jesus and the crowd saw the disciples leave without Jesus. When they got about halfway across, uh, there was a storm. It was the middle of the night. Jesus came walking on the water. He calms the storm. And it says when he got in the boat, immediately they were at the other side. Meanwhile, the next morning, the people were looking for Jesus. They said he didn't go with his disciples, but we don't know where he is. Maybe he caught a boat over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee as well. And so they sought Jesus. They sought after Jesus. And uh, we tend to think that any way of seeking Jesus is acceptable to him, as long as you seek him. But, but we're going to find out that there is a way of seeking Jesus that is unacceptable to him. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he didn't say, well, I got there in the middle of the night because I walked on the water. That would have just fed their, you know, their misperceptions. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. We learn early in the Gospel of John, it's in John 2.11, that Jesus performed many signs as a way of displaying uh, the glory of God and Jesus' own glory. And when people saw the sign, they were supposed to, be, they were supposed to see that this sign points to Jesus. And so they weren't supposed to be fixated on the miraculous thing Jesus did. They were supposed to see the miracle and then become fixated on Jesus. And so the sign pointed to him. 
Uh, But beginning here in verse 26, Jesus exposes the motives of their hearts. They were seeking him because of what he could do for them. Uh, They were not actually seeking him. And so he says in verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes. Don't go scurrying around the Sea of Galilee just because you want a meal. But work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. And so they should work in the sense that they should expend energy for the food which endures to eternal life. That's what should captivate their hearts, their minds. That's what should energize them. And Jesus claims that he alone is able to give that food to them he, because God had put his stamp of approval on Jesus' life. And he's actually going to, we're going to learn in, in, uh, in a few verses, Jesus is going to say, actually, this food, I am the food that will give you eternal life. Verse 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? So they focused in on, okay, good. There's a work we need to do. What should we do to work this work to get eternal life? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You want to know the work, if you want to call it a work that God requires? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so believe the one that God has sent. And so it turns out that it's not about keeping the law. It's not about trying harder. It's not about going to church. Uh, Throughout the Gospel of John, this is the consistent message. Chapter 1, if you want to become a child of God. Chapter 3, if you want to be born from above. Chapter 4, if you want the living water. Chapter 6, if you want this food which results in eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the one that God sent. By the time we get to the end of the chapter, what we're supposed to believe about him becomes very, very clear. Well, the dialogue in the following verses makes clear that the people had not allowed the sign, the feeding of the 5,000 or the 20,000, to point them to Jesus. They wanted another sign. So they said to him, verse 30, What then... Uh, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they pointed back to manna, to Moses in the wilderness. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And so he basically tells them, stop being fixated on Moses and on the manna. Become fixated on the one who sent the manna, the one who sent the bread from heaven. When he says bread from heaven, you should pay attention to him. Verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. In other words, it's great that you fed us yesterday, but like Moses, always give us this bread. (laughs) They wanted this bread every day, okay? I mean, it would be a, a sweet setup. And so that's what they're saying. Jesus, do this sign, and then we'll follow you. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. 
And so it turns out, Jesus didn't merely want to give them bread. Jesus is the bread. Yes, he provided bread, but he is the bread. That's what the miracle signified. That was the significance of feeding the multitude. Jesus is the true manna from God who gives life, eternal life. Notice a couple things from verse 35. This will be really important when we get to those hard verses at the end. Notice, first of all, how you eat the bread of life. You come to him and you believe in him. He says, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And so if you want the value, if you want the nourishment, if you want the life that this bread gives, you come to him and you believe in him. And this is really important to understand because at the end of the chapter, he lets go of, the, of this, this practical how you come to him, how you believe in him, and he just goes pure metaphor. He says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what he's talking about, coming to him and believing in him. Second, notice what he promises here. And we have to lock in on this, okay? If you want to, if you want to accept Jesus' own job description, what he's promising, look what he promises. He makes the same promise two different ways. He said, he who comes to me will not hunger. In other words, Jesus is promising, he is promising to satisfy the deepest hunger of our hearts, okay? And he says, he who believes in me will never thirst. He's, he's promising to quench the deepest thirst of your soul. And so if you come to him and you believe in him, it's a, it's a transformation that takes place. It's not just giving, uh, giving a new title. Well, I used to be atheist or I used to be agnostic or I used to be none, but now I've got a new label, Christian. That's not a label. It's a transformation. You become a new creature in Christ. You have new appetites. You want different things. You are satisfied in the deepest part of your soul by Jesus himself. And what, what is the thing that we crave? We, in this context, we crave life. We, we crave wholeness. We want rest. We want peace. We want this, this joy in the deepest part of our being. And so this promise should make us evaluate what are you seeking Jesus for? What are you seeking? What are you expecting of Jesus? Are you mainly expecting him to give you food, shelter, and the essentials of life? Well, he does. He wants us to seek him for those things. Give us this day our daily bread. We should seek him for those things. Uh, but do we understand that everything he does for us is a sign that should point us to him? What this passage tells us, especially verse 35, is that the value of a relationship with Jesus is not primarily in what he can do for us. The value of a relationship with Jesus is Jesus. He is our joy. He is our hope. He is our life. He is our treasure. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Verses 37 through 35 describe this, how this discussion escalated. They increasingly resisted the idea that Jesus was greater than Moses and the bread that he offered is greater than the manna. And like the children of Israel, guess what the crowd did? 
they grumbled. We were told three times they grumbled. <clears throat> they grumbled among themselves. In verse 51, Jesus used, uses this imagery that I think is intentionally provocative. It's almost like he says, fine, let me just lay this out there for you. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will, will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, you want to know what this bread is? Just God, the bread came down out of heaven, fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. It was manna. The bread that he has now sent from heaven, it is my flesh. We read in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Understandably, verse 52, then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And this happens throughout the gospel of John. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. He says, how can a man be born again? And can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He tells the woman, the, the Samaritan woman, I have living water. You'll never thirst again. He says, give me, she says, give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well every day. And so here again, they didn't understand what he was saying. Verse 53, Jesus, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. If you keep reading, he says it about three or four times. If you want eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So again, why would Jesus say this, okay? Why would he put it that way? Well, I think what he's doing is he is now talking in pure metaphor, okay? If I had a loaf of bread and I had a cup of water and I said, if you want the value of this, you want the nutritional value, you want to assimilate this, you, you want to be nourished by this, you want to live as, as, as a result of this, you have to eat this bread and drink this cup. In the same way, Jesus in pure metaphor says, if you want eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my, my blood. And I think what, it, what he's doing there, he's, he's making a reference to the crucifixion says, again, we, we learn what he's really talking about in verse 35. It means the bread, if you want the bread of life, you have to come to him and believe in him. What we learn here is you have to come to him and believe that he was crucified for your sin. He died as your substitute. If you really want life, that's what you have to accept about Jesus. And of course, nobody really understood what Jesus was saying till after the resurrection. Somebody who absolutely understood this was Paul. Years later, he wrote in Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. His identity, his boast, they were in the crucifixion of Jesus. And he understood that it was scandalous to the Jews, and it was a stumbling block to the Gentiles. But that's where he found life. That was his identity. So he boasted in the body and blood of Christ. And you're probably thinking, that sounds an awful lot like what we say at the Lord's Supper. We say, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And, uh, and that's what it represents. I don't think Jesus was talking about the Lord's table. Jesus was talking about the reality behind the Lord's table, that his body and his blood are the source of our life. 
You read the rest of the chapter, you see that many of his disciples found Jesus' teaching so distasteful that they grumbled, number one, and number two, they were not walking with him anymore. So it turns out they were not actually disciples of Jesus. They, they were disciples in name only. They were not apprenticed to him to learn his life. And so the question John 6 asks of each of us is, are you allowing Jesus as the bread of life to satisfy your deepest hunger? Are you allowing Jesus to satisfy your deepest hunger or... Do you pray, go to church, do Christian things because of what he can do for you? Which is it? Do you want what he can do for you or do you want Jesus? Well, uh, we're not suggesting that we shouldn't want Jesus to do things for us. He did provide bread. Yeah, he taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Jesus healed people. He delivered people from demonic powers. He taught his disciples, ask, seek, knock. Jesus taught, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to his children when they ask him? Jesus does want to do things for us. But what he can do for us shouldn't be the only thing, it shouldn't even be the main thing, that we seek from him, the most essential, satisfying thing we need from him has already been given. It happened at the cross. Jesus is the bread of life that has been given for us. His body was broken. His blood was shared. shed. Are you, are you allowing him to satisfy the deepest need, the deepest hunger of your soul? Are you allowing him to give you peace, wholeness, joy, hope, contentment, rest. He's willing. Are you allowing him to? The place to start is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. You will become born from above. You will be a new creature in Christ. You will begin, you, he will put his spirit within you, and you will begin to experience this life. You continue experiencing this life by walking with him and seeking him directly. Not only what he can do for you, but seek him. We've listed some scriptures in your, in your, um, at the bottom of the sermon outline in your bulletin. The second one is actually, yeah, it's, it's wrong in the bulletin, but this is correct. It's Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. But I encourage you to take, take a look at these this week and just, just marinate your mind, just saturate your mind in these scriptures. Psalm 27, for example, in verse 8 is when David, David is speaking. He said, when you, Lord, said, seek my face, he says, my heart said, your face, O Lord, I will seek. What does it mean to seek God's face? Well, if you've ever owned a dog, you know what this, you know what this is like. That's one thing dogs do is they seek your face. Our precious Sheltie uh, went bye-bye a year ago. But for years, I get up first, and I'm sitting in my chair, my Jesus chair. I'm there every morning, and I might be there for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, 30 minutes. And I'll, I'll be sitting there, and I'll have this strange sense I'm being watched, okay? And I turn around, and there she was, and she's just locked on my face. She's seeking my face. She's wanting to read me, okay? She knows if I'm happy. She knows if I'm annoyed. If I ignore her, 
She would just walk off. If I say, come here, and she'll just you know, waddle over. If I get up, she'll head to the door. She knows what I'm, I'm going to do. I'm going to let her out. And so she, she would seek my face. And that's what we do with God. We go into his presence. We don't just glance at him and say, hi, and we're off on the day. No, we, we go into God's presence, and we linger, and we notice. What is his emotion? What's the, and we, we do this through Scripture, okay? This isn't as weird as it sounds. But we, we notice, what is, where is he looking? Where, where is his eyes? What does he care about? Are we noticing those things? What, what is he saying to me? And so uh, we're not only seeking him for what he can do for us, we're seeking him because he can't get enough of him. We're actually interested in God, in Jesus, the Holy Spirit. John 15, 7 is a fascinating verse because it talks both about experiencing Jesus directly and asking him for things. He says this, if you, and this sounds like this incredibly risky, reckless thing to say, but he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. He says, if you remain, if you just stay with me, you just linger in my presence and you let my words uh, dwell within you. In other words, my thoughts are becoming your thoughts. Jesus says, if that's the case, if that's really the case, ask whatever you want and it will be done. And so there you have it both. We seek his face, we seek him, and then we even know what to pray. We know how to pray. And so this is how we, we go from having a, a self-centered life to a Christ-centered life. We abide in Christ. We let his words abide in us. We taste and see that the Lord is good. This week, experience Jesus as the bread of life and see how satisfying he really is. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us the will, and give us the, uh, just the focus, give us this, the, the courage in some cases to come to you and seek your face, seek you directly. We pray, God, that, that uh, this might be our common experience, that we would seek you and find you satisfying. And God, some here in the room uh, do this day in and day out, and what a delight you are to those persons. God, there are probably others here today that really have never experienced what we're talking about. For that person, would you, would you surprise him or her with your grace? Would you give them this experience in your presence? Uh, Jesus, we do believe that your death and resurrection, your enthronement accomplished everything we need for life and godliness. And God, we want to experience it. We don't want to stumble through this life uh, as if we're poor spiritually when we have the riches of Christ. God, we want to experience it all. And this is what we want, so this is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.